thanks for listening to this sermon from Cedar Springs Church. We know life is busy and it's easy to get caught up running in so many directions. At Cedar Springs, we see you and we're with you. We also understand the feeling inside of you for something deeper. In fact, we believe God created us for those deeper things and we want to help you discover them. We want to introduce you to a life lived deeply with God and with others. If you're not already, we invite you to visit us during one of our Sunday worship services. We are all working toward taking our next step to move into deeper faith and community. So come, take your next step with us. We don't want you to settle for life as normal because you were made to live deeply. Friends, good morning. It is good to see you. If you're new with us, my name is James Forsyth, and looking forward to this time together in God's Word. It is, of course, a good habit for us to meet together week by week and spend time in God's Word, but it's, it's more than a habit. Uh, this isn't an empty ritual, an empty routine. We, we come to God's Word with a sense of anticipation that He will meet with us like He met with those disciples on the Emmaus Road, and that our hearts would burn within us as we behold Jesus. Jesus in his word. So we come with a sense of expectation, anticipation for what he will do with us in this time. As a church, this Advent season, we've been looking at the messy family tree of, of Jesus. And we've seen how so many of his ancestors, uh, their lives were full of all kinds of dysfunction. And that's given us hope as we've thought about our own messy families and the dysfunction that we have in our own lives as well. We produced an Advent devotional for you. Each day has looked at one of the characters who appears in the genealogy of Jesus. And then in the sermons, we've been focusing on the women that appear in the genealogy. We looked at the life of Tamar. We looked at the life of Rahab. And this week, we come to the life of Ruth. We read how her story began a moment ago. Now turn with me, if you would, to Ruth chapter 4, where we'll read how her, her story ends. Ruth 4, starting in verse 13, reading through to the end of verse 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Lord, we do ask that you would be pleased to draw near to us in these moments and that you would enable us to behold our Christ and that our hearts would burn within us as we get um, our senses around the beauty of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would spare us from empty routine, but in this time we'd have um, the life and strength that comes from meeting with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, we are at, Christmas is two weeks away. Two weeks today, it's, it's here. Um, how is morale? Um, how, how is your to-do list looking? <laughs> Came across a list this week, 50 items 
on the Christmas to-do list, including baking Christmas cookies and drinking hot chocolate and writing Christmas cards and uh, you know reading a Christmas book and making your home smell jolly. I, I'm not entirely sure how one even does that, but apparently it must be done. And work your way through the 20 that are listed there, and you've still, you've still not bought or wrapped any presents, and you still have 30 more things to go. Now, <laughs> you know there's always that one person, they might be here this morning, um, who's done it all. <laughs> you got their card in November. <laughs> They bought all their gifts on sale and they're now wrapped under the tree. If you're that person, we're happy for you, okay? <laughs> we don't like you, <laughs> but, but we are happy for you. And of course, we're gonna move straight from this season of Christmas into the season of New Year's resolutions, where we're all gonna decide to lose weight and save money and generally have less fun. But here's the good news of Christmas. You ready? See, when you come to church this morning, you aren't here to get another thing to do. You come to church to celebrate what God has done for you. Let me say that again, because it's going to frame our whole of, uh, whole of this sermon, the whole of our time together. When you come to church, why do you think you're here this morning? To get another thing to do? You need another thing to do? That's not, that's not why we gather as the people of God. We gather to celebrate what God has already done for us in the gospel. And at Christmas, he does a lot. Three things I want us to consider this morning. Three things God does for us at Christmas from the book of Ruth. You ready? Point one, friends, this morning at Christmas, God enters the darkness. At Christmas... God comes and he enters into the darkness. As we open up the book of Ruth, we're introduced to Naomi, we're introduced to her husband, and we're introduced to their two sons. And then in the first five verses, just five verses of this book, her entire life falls apart. First of all, we read that there's a famine in the land. She and her family live in Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. But in the house of bread, there is no bread. And so hunger begins to kick in. Now, most of us don't really know what it's like even to be truly hungry. But we can imagine her desperation. Desperation as her kids get thinner before her eyes. Desperation when they realize that if they don't do something about this, this is going to take them to their death. And so what do they do? They leave the land of Bethlehem to go to the land of, of Moab. They move out of the promised land. Remember, they only arrived there last week when we looked at that in the book of, book of Joshua. They leave the promised land outside of the, the boundaries of, of, of God's promised land to go to Moab, this evil pagan land. Such is their desperation, though they need to go there for food. Now they had no food, now they have no home. And once they get to Moab, things go from bad to worse. Remember that we're reading historical narrative. We're not reading, a, we're not reading fiction. We're not re this isn't a novel. This is a true account of events that really happened in time and space. And can't you just imagine her heartbreak? When in Moab first... 
her husband dies. Her husband, the one she's loved all her life, the one who's loved her all her days, the one who together they've pulled together and and stood shoulder to shoulder as they've navigated the ups and the downs and the trials and the famines of life while he dies and now she finds herself alone. And not just alone, but, but a widow, vulnerable in that culture, vulnerable in that day. But then not only does her husband die, what happens next? Both her sons die as well. Her sons who have grown and have married more by women, both of them now pass away. And so think of the darkness of her life as we meet her at the end of verse 5. She has no food, no home, no husband, no children. Like her circumstances could, could hardly be worse. And I wonder if, if for some of us this morning the most wonderful time of the year feels more like that. That circumstances could barely be worse, that you're feeling right now that you're kind of of living in darkness. If you read your way through our congregation's prayer requests, it's clear that many of us are there. Our members who are dealing with cancer as it ravages their body and takes them to death. Our members who are dealing with with Parkinson's disease as it eats away their memories and eats away the joy of life. Our members who are finding that depression and anxiety and addiction threaten to overwhelm. Our members who are trying to recover from the the trauma of abuse, be it physical or spiritual or or emotional. Our, Our members who are dealing with all kinds of joblessness and loneliness and And fear, for many of us, this is not the most wonderful time of the year. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know that Christmas is for you this morning. Why? Because at Christmas, God enters the darkness. God God sees you in your darkness, and he has entered in. He's about to do so for Naomi but he's done so for us in his son. It's how we started the service today with that beautiful quote from Isaiah chapter nine, that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. If you're in darkness, there's a great light for you this morning. That those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. If you are living in a dark place, there is light to shine on you Today, God sees you in your darkness, and he has entered in. Well, what does he do? What does God do when he enters in? That's point two. At Christmas, we celebrate because God has entered into our darkness, but he does more than that. When he enters into our darkness, he then, second point, works for our good. God enters, then God works. And what's particularly beautiful about the book of Ruth is that he works even when he's unseen. If you're thinking, well, you know, I don't see much evidence of God at work in my life today, be encouraged by the book of Ruth. Commentators point out that there are no miracles recorded in the entire book. Nothing spectacular or or miraculous happens. So, you know, like there's no parting of the water. There's no miraculous healing. No demons get cast cast out. Uh, Even with the particular things that their family is struggling with. They're hungry, but there's no miraculous provision of, of bread. 
They lose loved ones, but no one is miraculously raised, raised from, from, from the dead. And yet, in the midst of it all, we see that God is clearly at work. Though Naomi's circumstances could hardly be worse, God is clearly at work, and he does at least three things for her. First of all, see how he provides Naomi with a friend, with a friend, with, with Ruth, her, her daughter-in-law. After both of her sons and her husband have died, Naomi decides to go back to her old home, back to Bethlehem. But she encourages her, her daughters-in-law, who are from Moab, to stay in Moab to begin again. They are, are young enough to be able to remarry, to have children, to go on and live, live a full life. And that's, that's her encouragement, encouragement to her. Orpah, one of her daughters, agrees to do so, but Ruth, she isn't having any of it. And do you see what she says in verse, in verse 16? No, where you go, I'm going to go. And where you, where you dwell, that's where I'm going to dwell. And where your people are, that's where my people are. And your God, that's going to be my God. And in fact, where you die, I'm going to die. And may the Lord do horrendous things to me if I don't make true on this word that I've just given you in this moment. Well, Naomi kind of looks her up and down and thinks, I ain't arguing with this girl. Right? <laughs> and so in verse 19, they go off to Bethlehem together. Naomi, not alone, but with this friend. Well, once they get to Bethlehem, we see the Lord providing after this, this friend. He, he works now to, to bring them food. <laughs> and in, in chapter 2, Ruth goes off to, to scrounge in the fields to try and gather grain for bread. Now, understand that this was in accordance with um, Old Testament law and how things worked in the, those days. If you owned a field, you would harvest it, you would glean it, but you would only do so once. And you wouldn't harvest the edges of the field at all. Why? Because God wanted there to be leftovers for the poor to come and collect. Remember, God is passionate about justice, and it matters to him that everyone gets fed. And so that's what Ruth goes off to do. And then we read in chapter 2 that she happened into the field of a man named Boaz. She, she just happened to end up there. From her perspective, it wasn't intentional, but from God's perspective, this was no coincidence. This was no coincidence. He was working even when un unseen. This man, Boaz, um, provides for her. Not only does he provide for her, but he protects her in her vulnerable situation. This is going to start a whole chain of events that we'll get to in a moment. For, for now, though, just, just notice how the, the Lord, the unseen, provided this friend, and then he provided food. And by the time we get to the end of the book, he's provided a family as well. Isn't it beautiful how the story ends? The verses I read for us a, a few minutes ago. Boaz and Ruth do marry, and they do have children, and then they bring their son, and they place him in grandma's lap. Naomi, widowed, childless, holds this little life. And the whole community celebrates. The whole community says, wow, Ruth, she's better than having seven sons. And, and they all celebrate like, how kind God has been to Naomi through, through these set of circumstances. And friends, listen, if you're in the darkness remember God's already at work. As he brought 
a friend and food and family to Naomi. He is already up to something in your life. Theologians call this providence. It's the doctrine, it's the teaching of how God rules and overrules all things to bring good things to his children, to those he loves. And so you are not the victim of random chance or fate. If if you're a child of God today, you're not the victim of random chance or fate because your life is held by our mighty and majestic and merciful God. And we believe that he is at work for our good, even when we we don't see how. I can't think of this teaching, providence, um, without thinking about my own bride. Rosie's parents went through just the definitionally messy divorce when she was 12 or so. Um, She hasn't seen her father since then. I've never met her father. It's part of the brokenness that's in our family. We all have enough dysfunction to to go around. Well, when that happened... Uh, Rosie's mother moved the family from Leeds, England to Edinburgh, Scotland. (laughs) 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 Then they did a tour of high schools trying to figure out where where they were going to live and where Rosie wanted to go to school, and they narrowed it down to two. And then the pros and con lists were kind of just the same. And so they more or less flipped a coin. And Rosie showed up for her first day as the new girl at James Gillespie's high school, where guess who was there? (laughs) You know, the new girl always sticks out. You know, and the new kid, I was like, nice, new kid. (laughs) Through random chance or fate, No, I say through the providence of God, my life was immeasurably blessed. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Isn't it exciting to think about how he's still doing that right now today? To think of, just imagine with me, engage your sort of creative, sanctified imagination to consider all the little things that he's working together for our good right now. We don't even realize it how your disappointment at work might actually be the thing that leads you to a new opportunity. How that random phone call, that random text you, you know, sent or received this week could actually be the thing that leads you into some kind of plenty. How the struggle that you have right now, the darkness we're experiencing right now, will years from now give us the experience that we need. How through it all, he's shaping us into the men and the women that we ourselves want to be. Christian, so many of us are good at testifying about God's faithfulness when we look backwards. We say, oh, the Lord, the Lord's been so kind. And yes, we've had hard times. Yes, we've had ups and downs, but he's been faithful to us through it all. He's been with us through it all. We look back and see his hand and we give him praise for it. And I say, hey, let's anticipate it as we look forward. Let's remember that the God of history is the God of today. That the God of our yesterdays is the God of our tomorrows. That the God who worked in Naomi's life and worked in in Ruth's life is still working in, in our lives. That he enters into the darkness, but there he works for our good. How can we be sure 
How do we deal with that nagging doubt that says, no, this sounds nice, but maybe that's just fluffy, positive talk. (laughs) Our third point. Here's how we can be sure. We can be sure because at Christmas, God enters the darkness. At Christmas, God works for our good. And at Christmas, God brings a redeemer to us. God enters, God works, God redeems. So after Ruth has been scrounging in the fields of of Boaz, she goes home and tells Naomi in a very chit-chatty, light-hearted way. She doesn't understand the significance of this yet. Oh, I, I happened my way into the field of a man called Boaz. Well, when Naomi hears this, she jumps out of her skin. She leaps off the couch and she throws down her glasses and she says, you were at whose field? You were, you were where? You were at Boaz's? Verse 20 of chapter 2. This man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. He's a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. What does this mean? <laughs> well, remember with me that when the people of God entered the promised land, each of them were assigned a smaller portion of land. So the land wasn't just for them generically. Each of them were given a a plot of land within the promised land. You can read about this in the book of Joshua. And it's funny because to us, um, the first few chapters of Joshua are how they enter the promised land and conquer the promised land. And it's full of drama and stories and all kinds of wild, crazy action. And then you get chapter after chapter after chapter, a dozen more chapters where it's saying, and this bit of land was given to this person. And this bit of land was given to that person. And this random bit over here was given to that random person over there. And you get two chapters deep into this dozen chapter tirade and think, man, I'm ready to be done with Joshua. Except for the Israelites, this was like Christmas morning. God had promised he would bring them into the land. And now in these chapters, each of them gets to open the parcel, gets to open the present that had been given to them. Their stake in the promised land was valuable. But over time, what happened is that some of the people lost their portion of the land. How would that happen? Well, maybe to to debt, or maybe, like Naomi, because they left. Because, Because they left. And so now when she returns to the promised land, she doesn't really have a home. And so she doesn't really have have a future in those days and, and at that time. But thankfully, the law made a provision for how you could get your land back. The law gave a way for, for, for it to be possible for you to, to redeem that land. But, but it wasn't easy. You needed three things. First of all, you needed a relative. You needed a family member to to step up to get this land that had been in your family line. Second, though, after a relative, they had to be wealthy. Why? Because they had to have the financial resources to buy this land back. But then not only did you need a relative who was wealthy, hardest of all, you needed them to be willing to do it. You needed them to be willing to do it. You needed them to be willing to buy back the land and take on the responsibilities that came with it, which, to cut a long story short, in this situation would involve marrying Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, 
Ruth. So, so who's going to do that? Who's going to pay their hard-earned cash to buy back land from this wayward relative, then take on an unwanted Moabite, pagan, think evil, dirty in your mind wife, and have kids with them to continue the family line? Whoever is going to do that, there's no way that Boaz is going to do that. Why? Because we know that Boaz is, he's an old man by this point. And so why is he going to spend his retirement on a wayward relative? Why is he going to take on another wife? And certainly, why does he want more kids? Guys, (laughs) I have four kids and I love them. And I do not want any more. It would need to be a word of the Lord, right? Like that, you know, like who, who's gonna, who does that? The chances, the chances of Boaz doing this are one in a million. So Ruth says, You're telling me there's a chance, right? You're telling me there's a, a chance. She is, she is an incredible woman on the pages of scripture. We can illustrate this, actually. Take, take a little detour with me. We can illustrate this, but did, did you know that the order of your English Bible and the order of the Hebrew Bible are not the same? So the Bible is one book, but it's made up of lots of little books, lots of different chapters, so, so to speak. And in the Old Testament, there are 39 books. And the order of those 39 books in our English Bibles, the Bibles that we read, are not the same order as in the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that, that Jesus read. See, our Bibles, our, our English Bibles, are largely ordered or arranged chronologically. We more or less have the Old Testament books flow out in the order in which they happened. So we start with Genesis in the beginning. And Genesis tells us about the story of God's people until we get to the Exodus, when they went into slavery and then escaped from, from slavery. Then the books of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy tell us about what happened during that period just after the Exodus, which leads us to to Joshua, where the people move out of the wilderness into the promised land. Judges then tells us about life in that first period of, of the promised land. And then after the book of Judges, in our English Bibles, comes the book of Ruth. Why? Because verse 1 says, in the days that the judges ruled, all of this stuff happened. (laughs) And so it makes sense to us, as we've arranged our Bibles chronologically, for Ruth to be placed right after the book of Judges. But you know, that's not where this book is placed in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible isn't arranged chronologically, just based on how events happened. It's arranged theologically to make deliberate points about God. It's not arranged chronologically like a story. It's arranged theologically to to teach us more about the meaning and substance of these books. Overall, it's divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. You'll sometimes hear that used by the New Testament authors as a shorthand for all of the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the law, the prophets, and the writings. Well, the book of Ruth is contained within the writings, and it comes right after the book of Proverbs. Hang with me. We're getting there. Why? Why Why does Ruth come after Proverbs? Do you remember how Proverbs ends? Proverbs 
31, telling us about the, the wife of noble character or, or the excellent wife. Both of which, by the way, really weak translations. Literally, that passage is about the, the quote, woman of strength. Isn't that more compelling? Wife of noble character or woman of strength. I love this idea that, that the Bible describes the kind of woman that the Lord would have our woman to be by using this, this picture of, of strength. Both of my daughters got phone calls this week with extended rants about, hey, see the strong thing that God has placed within you? That is from him. And don't step back from that. That is, that is it's a nightmare being a preacher's daughter, okay? <laughs> Proverbs 31 is about the woman of strength. So then you turn one page to the book of Ruth. Guess who the only person in the whole Bible to be called a woman of strength is? Is Ruth. <laughs> so in Proverbs 31, you get this description of what a, a godly woman, a woman of strength looks like. And then you turn the page to read an example of what a godly woman, what a woman of strength looks like. And in what happens next, we, we see some of her strength come out. Because she goes to Boaz's house in the middle of the night, and there she proposes marriage. Now, you understand, it's not all that common for women to pro pro propose in our culture, and it was completely unheard of in, in that culture. This is a, a bold move. She goes and she proposes marriage through two things. First of all, through a series of, of rituals. She positions herself in his bed. She's taking the position of, of his wife. And then secondly, these rituals are accompanied by some words. She says and requests that he would take her under the cover of his wings. So through ritual and words, like getting down on one knee and asking, will you marry me? Ruth goes and, and says, hey, we know that you're a relative, and we know that you're wealthy. What we don't know is whether you're willing to do it. And we're not going to stand around and wait, wait and find out. We're going to rush headlong and, and, force, and force your hands. Incredible bravery by Ruth, but then what's more surprising is that Boaz says yes. This wealthy relative is willing. And so he buys the land back. He marries Ruth. Together, they have children. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great this Christmas? Wouldn't you love that? To have a relative. Incarnation, your own, your own flesh and blood who was wealthy enough to pay off all your debts, even sin and guilt, and who was willing to do it, who was willing to take unwanted people and make us his own, cover us under the protection of his wings that we, the church, might be his bride and he would be our groom. We celebrate Christ. That from Ruth and Boaz, the Savior would come. They're included in his family tree. The, the true Redeemer who really did come for you and really did come for me. The one who has entered our darkness. 
the one who's at work for our good, the one who has redeemed us forever in this life and the next. So what do you have to do with, do with all that this Christmas? What do you have to do this Christmas? Nothing else but celebrate what God has done. You're not here for something else to do. You're here to celebrate what God has done. And friends, if, you, if you've never done that before, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, if you're not sure if you're a Christian, I would love for you to celebrate this today. I don't want you to live in darkness. I don't want you to be uncertain if God's at work for your, for your good. I don't want you to be without the Redeemer that we all need. I want you to be secure in his love. And don't you see that God, isn't it great that God doesn't have a to-do list for you? You don't have to come and clean yourself up and get your life back on track before you can be part of God's family. No, we're all messy. We're all dysfunctional. All we do is receive his forgiveness, accept his grace. And you can do that today. You can do that just now. And he will enter your darkness and he will work for your good and he will redeem you in this life and the next. Do that today. Then come talk to me or talk to Andrew after the service. We'd love to talk next steps with you from there. If you are a Christian, add this to your to-do list. <laughs> and I actually, I mean that literally. Take your to-do list and then write or type across the top. Celebrate what God has done. Celebrate what God has done. It's the good news of Christmas. <clears throat> We're not here to get something else to do. We're here to celebrate what God has done. Write that atop your to-do list and then navigate all the other things you have to do secure in his love. Amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful and we also feel the weight of the fact that at Christmas you enter into the darkness. We feel the weight for ourselves and our loved ones as we navigate struggle and pain. And so we thank you that in the midst of this darkness, you are at work, at work for our good, even when you're unseen, that we can trust that we're not the victims of random chance or fate, but are in the hands of you, our, our mighty, majestic, merciful God. And Lord, you've, you've proved that we can, we can believe those things because you've sent the Redeemer the Redeemer, our, rel our, our wealthy relative who is willing to shelter us under the shadow of his wings. We thank you, Lord Christ, that you have entered our darkness, that you are at work for our good, and that you have redeemed us, your church, as your beloved bride. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>